Welcome to episode 34 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a worldwide community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking with Keith Plum, owner and director at Integral Pharma Services out of Cheshire, United Kingdom. Keith, thank you for coming on the interview today. Well, thank you for inviting me, Chris, and it's going to be interesting to talk to you. I agree wholeheartedly. Keith is a lecturer in food and pharmaceutical engineering at the University of Chester, in addition to Integral Pharma Services. He has 40 years experience in pharmaceutical, biopharma, fine chemicals, and allied process industries, several of those focusing on industries handling combustible dust. He's on the board of trustees with the Institute of Chemical Engineers. So in today's interview, we're talking about understanding the Dust Explosion Risk Reduction Toolkit. So just by way of background, I'll, I'll give a little story. I started online in late 2016 with mydustexplosionresearch.com. I was writing a lot of science and research articles on dust explosion and combustible dust hazards. I actually came across a video um, that had Keith in it. And he was talking about this, I think the early stages of this risk reduction toolkit, this really systematic way of going through combustible dust hazards, identifying and preventing and protecting against them. And maybe a minute and 30 seconds into the interview, he says something like, through our literature survey, we, we actually came across a really interesting paper. These are his words, not mine. And the paper was by Cloney and his co-author. So it was actually a paper I'd published in 2013. And he mentioned a, a phrase that I used, which was unwrapping the dust explosion pentagon. So this paper was entitled Development of an Organizational Framework for Studying Dust Explosion Phenomenon. And the reason myself and my coworkers wrote it wasn't actually for industry application. It was because we, myself actually, was doing modeling work and I was trying to break down what is a dust explosion, what are the pieces to it, so I could kind of zoom in on what area I was going to focus on. So this whole concept of unwrapping the Pentagon, you need to have dust, yes, you need to have oxidizer, yes, but then there's a process. Dust needs to be dispersed, needs to be ignited once it's dispersed. Um, the flame propagates, then the confinement can allow that to accelerate or allow pressure to build or whatever actually happens to the destructive side. So this Pentagon that we've been kind of looking at for years is really a process. And it was interesting because I used that to say, okay, well, my research is going to focus and zoom in on this one specific aspect. Keith and his work really took that and said, okay, well, that's an interesting observation that the Pentagon is a process. That means that we can actually zoom in on all these different pieces from a industry perspective and use that as a framework for preventing and protecting from dust explosions. So it was really interesting to see a different kind of industrial take on something I was doing on the, the research and the science side. So in 2017, I noticed a Hazard X um, game award to, to this group for this framework, uh, focusing on contribution to safety. And I wanted to get Keith on to talk about the development of this framework. Um, not so I could bring up the story that, about this paper that I wrote in 2013, but to see how it's actually going today. What are the different steps that he saw when he made this more practical version of it? Then what successes have they had and where, where's that going today? So that was sort of a long-winded introduction, but um, I wanted to get the background out there. So Keith, maybe a good place to start on your side is, can you just briefly explain, explain what your role is in industry today? Yeah, no problem, Chris. I'm uh, a self-employed consultant and I work, as you said in the introduction, mainly in pharmaceuticals, biopharmaceuticals, fine chemicals, etc. And of course, those industries, to a large extent, use solids to greater or lesser extent, normally in, in small sizes. Some of the products in pharmaceuticals particularly have, have been micronized uh, for 
reasons of uh, making sure that they work with the end user. So they're an obvious area for potential dust explosion. So that's kind of how I got to thinking about this. And actually, the reason for looking at this in a bit more detail, that I was getting rather frustrated uh, as an industrial consultant, that there didn't appear to be as much science with method methodology, etc., in, in the whole area. And that we were ending up with lots of arguments between us because we didn't have enough science to be able to interpret the situation and come up with sound conclusions. And that was really much of the reason why I started in the first place, looking for more science. And it was only in that looking for more science activity and doing all the trawling through the literature that I, I, that I tripped over your paper, Chris. With the unwrapped Pentagon, and then and there was that was one of my kind of you know light bulb moments, thinking, hey, this is the way to do it, uh, and, and that really helped. On the way there, uh, some time ago, I'd read a in fact I'd actually been asked to uh, write a review of a book by uh, I think a, a colleague of yours, Chris Paul. Uh, Amiot, is it? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his name. Yep, you got it, Dr. Paul Amiot. Yeah, and um, my major criticism was I thought the book was great, and it, it had this study of the Pentagon, but my great criticism of it was the fact that it didn't relate to the the real world as I knew it. In other words, the world I know is 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 obviously mainly industrial processes. Uh, it, it's a bunch of uh, regulations, be they uh, UK regulations or European regulations or whatever, uh, and a bunch of standards, uh, some of which, of course, have come out of the uh, European standards organisation, some of which, of course, are coming out through North America. And I just thought that lots of really good ideas, but it wasn't related to the world that I worked in. And I just wanted to start doing something that would relate the two. And that's how I, I took your unwrapping. Uh, and then I could relate that immediately to the steps involved in, as I see it, how you would approach the industrial problems. Well, that's a really great background. And you can kind of tell that my, my background is a similar take. Back then in 2013, I was kind of solely on the science side and, and physics and chemistry. And that was my PhD topic. Over the last uh, number of years since 2016, it's really how do we how do we allow the science and and extend that to actually make informed decisions. And I do want to mention this this paper was sort of a I'll try to think of a way and say it's not that downplaying, but it was it it wasn't net new thoughts for me. It was just collecting information together, and it really is standing on the shoulders of of giants in the science world. Um, people like Dr. Ralph Eckhoff, Dr. Paul Amia, Dr. Trigvis Gold, Dr. Mike Pegg, who's also on my thesis committee. And in the U.S., Cash Dollar and Hertzberg, and then many, many others. Um, I've literally have a stack of 600 academic papers on dust explosion in my in my file, file folder beside me. So it's not something that was none of that paper was net new that I came up with. Um, I think the concept that I had brought up was this unwrapping of the Pentagon from just being discrete elements to to being a process. Then the whole goal of of this podcast and dust safety science is really to start, like you're saying, tying things together. So we have the we have the science and the, the chemistry and the physics, and we're getting an understanding there. We have regulators. We have industry associations. 
we had the facilities themselves. We can't forget the actual people we're trying to serve here and combining those all together. I would say that's a fair criticism of the science textbooks that we have on this topic is that they are they do try to be applied in a lot of ways. But I guess the question would be how many pharmaceutical industry folks that are that are handling combustible dust and powders every day, how many of them have actually read these textbooks? And the fault's not with them. The fault's with the textbooks maybe not being targeted in the right way to to meet them where they are. So it's a it's a fair thought process and this big gap between where fundamental science is, where industry application is, it's a chasm. It's really big. And we're trying to play a role in in, in filling that. So I think that's a, a really good background on that. In the the risk reduction toolkit as you as you see it today and has it kind of developed, what are the the steps involved in in reducing the risk from dust explosions? Okay. Just before I go to to that point, Chris, I'd, I'd like just to pick up your point about standing on the shoulders of giants because it's a concept that I also liked. I don't have 600 uh, papers on, on dust explosion, but I probably have 200. And it, it's the same thing, only that in my case, I, I thought you were being slightly modest there, Chris, and uh, and I kind of put you as one of my giants. Uh, that If I understood on your shoulders, uh, I wouldn't have seen what I saw. So... Uh, uh, it, it, I think each of us become a bit of another giant in this pyramid that gets us somewhere nearer to the answer. Well, I appreciate that. I think we all we all certainly have a role to play. <laughs> That's right. So, I think with your question now, what are the st- what are the steps are, and, and this is in your process, and and I broke this down initially into the three parts. That's the process that is illuminated by unwrapping the program, uh, the the Pentagon. I broke down into three steps. So my first step uh, is the probability of creating a a combustible or, or whatever dust cloud. And in that case, that, that actually is, is three parts of the Pentagon. That is, have you actually got some fuel? Have you got something that can loosely be called an oxidant? And finally, have you got a method of dispersing the fuel into the oxidant so that it will form a a flammable atmosphere. And there are different mechanisms that cause that to happen. So that's why I think of that bit is what's the probability of that flammable atmosphere being created. And then I move on to the second step, uh, which is the fourth part of the Pentagon, which is the ignition. In other words, you know, what's the probability that there's going to be some form of ignition source? And then I move on, obviously, to that piece at the end of yours, which is is what happens when it ignites, and, and what are the consequences of that? And that that bit of the loop that you put in the diagram of how the thing builds up is quite important for the consequences. Um, and I think it's quite important to to make a big difference between at least what I know as a flash fire and what's an actual dust explosion. Uh, and the dust explosion needs that fifth part of the Pentagon, which is the, the containment, so that without that, it, you get the dust cloud to ignite, but you don't get the high pressures that you would get when you've got containment of course, that's still pretty dangerous. And if you're stood in a, a dust cloud that ignites and forms a flash fire, there's a very high likelihood of being severely burnt, uh, as of quite a few 
folks have found to their cost. But what you don't get without the containment is that a huge amount of destruction. You've only got to look at the pictures of things like the Imperial Sugar Factory after the explosions to see what kind of destruction a full-blown dust explosion causes, uh, which is, is significantly greater than the flash fire that doesn't have that containment. Uh, I think the other point that you raised is is really important. So you, you kind of asked the question, well, how many folks working in a pharmaceutical factory that handles dust have actually read any of the enormous amount of um, papers and books in this field? And the answer is probably very few of them. I'm currently working on a live project in a pharmaceutical factory uh, with a colleague who is a knowledgeable colleague, and he has read some of the information that we're talking about, but again, far less than I have. And when you actually then move on to the people that are actually working directly with the materials, the answer to the question is, is that I would say none of them have read any of the literature. In fact, I'd be surprised if many people working with the powders common in pharmaceuticals and lots of other industries, that they are aware just how big a dust explosion can be and how much risk is associated with what they're doing. Yeah, I would agree. And it always comes down to when something happens. Um, and this is this is definitely a topic for another podcast because we'll probably end up down the, the rabbit hole. But when something happens, we, all, we automatically start pointing towards um, administrative controls. People should have had training or people did have training, but they didn't follow it. And then there's a lot of finger pointing. And we, we talked with Dr. Ivan Popoliti back on episode 11 of the podcast. Um, and he talks about that whole, that whole process. What happens once, once an explosion occurs? And then, you know, how is that stopping us from learning lessons from it? But the, the point I want to get across there was, was the training piece? There's always this question, was there training provided or wasn't there training provided? And that's almost like the litmus test. And that's probably the wrong test. Um, in the sense that I don't really care if training was provided. What I care is, was effective training provided? Did people actually know enough to change behaviors and change change thought process and change the systems that they're using? And, and it's actually, it's not a fault of the facility if that's not the case. It's it's our fault. It's my fault as trying to, to help, you know, get this ecosystem growing and help the combustible dust community. It's the I want to say it's the researchers' fault, but it's it's the whole community, it's the whole group. We're we're lacking getting that information out in an effective way that can be used. So, I'm right there with you on on those frontline workers needing to know the hazards more. Um, and it starts through the whole kind of hierarchy. Obviously, their their management team needs to know the hazards and be willing to put time and effort into um, addressing them and making them known. And then you know, executive team and industry association regulators and kind of all the way up the chain. So yeah, it's, a, it's interesting to get a, a cross view of that ecosystem and who who is lacking in different information pieces. So I think that's a big difficulty and one of the problems we're really trying to solve with these systematic approaches. So I don't know, I just wrote down creating informed workers. I don't know if that's really the, the label we want to put on that, but that's what I, I wrote down here in my notes. What are the other problems, like I said, we're trying, or difficulties or challenges that we're trying to solve with coming up with a systematic approach like this that you've seen in your your experience? I think this the starting point I find is getting people just to be on board with 
what actually is a combustible dust cloud. So this is quite relevant in the pharmaceutical industry. So if, if you took some simple literature numbers, a dust cloud needs to be something like 30 to 60 grams per cubic meter before it comes in the flammable range. But if you're thinking about the operational exposure, this is the hygienic point for the operators, the numbers that you're looking at are not grams per cubic meter, they're not even milligrams per cubic meter, they're micrograms per cubic meter, and in some cases we're now talking nanograms per cubic meter. There's a fundamental difference so that the, the pharmaceutical industry is working very hard to make sure it doesn't have a cloud of powder outside of the equipment that's in the microgram scale. But they're then not relating to the fact that inside the equipment is very likely to be in the grams per meter cube scale. And, and the reason I believe why this is a problem is, is behind the history of how we came about in the explosion protection world. And the history is, is that we're thinking about probably not dusts anyway, but we're thinking about gases and vapors, and we're thinking about leaks, and we're thinking about electrical equipment. So historically, and I'm going back quite a long way to when I first started working in the chemical industry, what people were, when they were thinking about what we call in Europe anyway, hazardous area classification. This was the responsibility of the electrical department because it was all about electrical equipment. But in dust explosions, particularly in pharmaceutical, we're not thinking about what's outside the equipment because we're making great efforts to make sure there isn't anything outside the equipment. What's important is what's inside the equipment. And that I think is a fundamental problem at the present moment. If you look at the uh, what are now ISO and IEC standards, they're global standards in other words, when you look at what they talk about, they talk about grade of release. That's where you start. What grade of release have you got? Now, release to me means you're thinking about something that comes out of the equipment. But in the dust world, that doesn't matter. It's what's usually, it's what's inside the equipment that matters. So what the fundamental thing we need to think about is that number three on the unwrapped pentagon, which is dispersion mechanism. And until we've got clear in our heads Wherever there's a dispersion mechanism, we've got a potential problem. We're not going to move forward on this. No, that's a great that's a great point. And I pulled out a couple of the challenges that I think a framework like this is trying to solve from that discussion. One is this concept of of having informed workers. Yes, they may have been provided training once a year, but was it effective training? And are they actually informed workers? Define and illuminate the hazards. So 
in the case of, of hazards inside of equipment or hazards outside of equipment, just delineating those and, and understanding when and where hazards are responsibility to understand. So you, you hit on a really good point about electrical engineers historically in some industries being the folks that are looking at this, but they're looking at it a certain way. And obviously if there's no electrical engineering component in the hazard and the combustible hazard, which happens in at least half of the, the combustible hazard, then the electrical engineer is not going to focus on it because it's, it's outside their scope. The question is whose scope is it on the inside? Who's it's, it's everyone's responsibility to understand, yes, but who's the actual person that, you know, is, is, is covering that region when it's outside the scope? Um, and then differences between industries, because in pharmaceutical, there is this um, concept of, of maintaining food cleanliness, maintaining hygiene. So there's very low levels of, generally very low levels of fugitive dust. There can be dust accumulate in areas that you can't see, like West Pharmaceutical, where it's above the suspended ceiling. So that's a concern. And then there's also a concern of what's inside the equipment, just like you're saying. So some other industries, it may be almost the inverse. If you're thinking about grain storage, well, they're still inside the equipment there, but there's other industries where it's more likely to have fugitive dust accumulation. So you can think maybe paper printing or paper shredding or recycling, or you can think of some industries where it'd be more likely to have, have dust outside the equipment. So then, yeah, the challenge would be these differences between industries. I want to talk through some some similarities and differences between this framework and, and some other things that we commonly talk about on the show, but maybe is there, is there a couple steps we talked about the framework involving the process of creating a dust cloud. So that's sort of step one. Uh, and that's the dust, the oxidizer and dispersion. Step two is probability of ignition source. And step three is the consequences. So this is interaction with the environment, the surroundings, uh, pressure rise, uh, flame acceleration. In a practical aspect, if you were to walk into a facility, and I think this will facilitate our, our next discussion, what are the, the, the stepwise procedure to implementing the, the kind of toolkit look? Okay, I think the first point is here is, is that I then broke down those three that we've talked about there, Chris, into bigger numbers. In other words, I started looking at things a bit more detailed. So... When you're going into the facility, my number one question is, is there any fuel? So you're right to say that there's a big difference between the pharmaceutical food industry where often trying to keep the stuff inside the kit for, for good hygiene reasons. And other industries may be the lumber industry or something like that, where actually um, th there's a lot of dust around. And then certainly that was another problem with imperial sugar. And as you rightly say, a problem with West Pharmaceuticals, that the dust wasn't obvious because it was hidden. So I start with the question, have you got any fuel? And there are often two varieties of the fuel which make a difference in the approach. The first variety of the fuel is if you're in the pharmaceutical, probably in the food industry, actually the fuel's the product. So You've got lots of pharmaceuticals that are very small. You've got things like, uh, you know, wheat flour or corn flour, etc., all of which are, are fine powders, and they're the product. And it's actually quite difficult to change that situation because that's what you're making. Whereas if you look at something like the lumber industry, it isn't what they're making. What they're making is big pieces of wood, but actually they're also creating as a byproduct a lot of dust 
that's inside the flammable range. So think loosely things fall into, when you're asking the question about the fuel, things loosely fall into these two categories of it's the product and I can't do much about it, or it's not the product, and really I should better do something about it. And certainly in that second case, when it's not the product, the big issue there is is that actually all the dust accumulates around the building and you've got a housekeeping problem, which is an obvious area where, where training is important. In other words, manufacturers may not see housekeeping as being that important when from a dust explosion point of view, it's probably the number one thing you can do to reduce the risk of a dust explosion destroying a factory. That's a good, a good way to break it down. Dr. Chris Bloor in, in episode 31 of the podcast kind of brought up that, that idea as well, that the question of do you have fuel, it can be a product. I don't think he said it exactly in these words. And I actually like these words. It can be a product or a byproduct. When it's a product, it's usually inside equipment because the company wants to maintain that product. They don't want it spilling out because that's lost money. Um, when it's a byproduct, it often becomes an afterthought. <laughs> It may be allowed to escape from equipment. It may be allowed to accumulate. It could accumulate for 20 years in floorboards. And so I, I do like that way of bringing it up. And, and the point there then is, is that, and, and much of what I think about at that point is guided by the European approach to risk assessments, which really starts with the first point is, is that you should eliminate the fuel. The number one priority is to eliminate the fuel. The problem is you can't eliminate the fuel if it's the product. So then you're forced to go to, to number two on the list, which could be, well, could I have a different product that isn't so dangerous? Well, that's often pretty tricky because if it's in a pharmaceutical or food or whatever, you're making stuff. But it isn't completely that you can't get, you can't change that because you can change the size of the fuel. So, one of the points in, in pharmaceuticals, for example, the size is quite important because part of making, say, a tablet is a granulation process. And that's a deliberate process of making things bigger. It's making it bigger, not for dust explosion reasons. It's making it bigger so that you can handle it in the tableting process. But it's quite important in thinking about what you do. I mean, can you create the, 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 the granules earlier or whatever? And the other point is about reducing the risk is is the which bits of the product are the problem. So when you've got a formulated product like a pharmaceutical or a food, it hasn't got one component and it's got multiple components. And what you find in the pharmaceutical industry, in many cases, the active part of the the product has a is a very high dust explosion risk for a few reasons, one of which is it's normally quite small particle size. But the second point is they often have very low minimum ignition energies, in some cases less than one millijoule. And they have a very high risk, but often they're combined with what the industry calls an excipient, often things like lactose, which is used to glue it all together to make a tablet. Uh, and the, the lactose is bigger, which is part of the granulation process. And it also has a much higher minimum ignition energy. So that when you've mixed the two together, or actually often most formulations are more than two, they're, they're three or four 
materials. When you've mixed it together, the risk has gone down. So part of your risk reduction is, well, can I actually only handle the neat active ingredient, which is the highest risk? Can I only handle that the minimum amount so that I don't have to have a high risk? Can I, can I handle that in very small quantities? so that the uh, the risk of an explosion is reduced, et cetera. So even if you can't get rid of it because it's the product, it doesn't mean to say you can't go to number two on the priority list, which is find some way of reducing the risk, even without getting rid of the, the actual explosive material. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And those are some of the concepts of kind of inherent safer design. And I, I, I like that as actually the way to, the first step. So do you have a fuel? Can you eliminate it? And can you substitute it? And a lot of people, especially as the byproduct side, people may shake their heads and say, oh, we can't eliminate it. But I've seen some successes and we haven't had a chance to get them on the podcast, but things like wood pellet industry, where they're they're not building a storage silo because they've improved their, they have the, the raw material coming in. So they improve the the timing for those materials coming in on trains. They've also approved their downstream processes. So they're processing it and now they're doing it at the same rate. They don't need to store up raw product. Um, so they don't have a storage silo anymore. So that's a case of eliminating or minimizing, whichever way you want to look at it, but minimizing to zero the storage of, of that excess sawdust. And so there are new innovations coming. And if you always ask yourself that question first, can we eliminate this fuel or remove it? And hostkeeping always comes up as this and hostkeeping is a good one, but let's, Let's dig a little deeper if we if we can first. So yes, we clean it up, but is there a way not to have it at all? Is there a way to avoid spilling it or or releasing it? Uh, and then yes, we we should also be cleaning it up as well. Okay, there's there's quite an important example of that in in uh, which you may have seen, um, which is the American Inc. Uh, case study from the Chemical Safety Board. And, and in that, they had what I thought was a fairly appalling process. And, and they ended up with a, uh, a dust collector with a lot of uh, carbon in it. Uh, and the, the, the big point to me was is that the Chemical Safety Board's analysis just literally said these guys didn't design their equipment to the required NFPA standards. Now, I can't say that that's wrong, but to me, it didn't go anywhere near far enough. Because if you look at that process, it didn't take much imagination to work out how you could really reduce the inventory such that the, the consequences of the, the potential explosions, the flash fire that they actually had, etc., could have been really brought down. But the report from the Chemical Safety Board just did not say that. And I thought that was a really missed opportunity to, to illustrate how you could change something to reduce, seriously reduce the risk. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity. And I, for the, the sake of the listeners, um, I'll go through that case study just briefly, and I'll mention some of the touch points. And I think we'll bring it around because we're getting close to the end of time on this interview. We'll bring it around to just the final kind of steps in the risk reduction toolkit and maybe comparing to, to what's done elsewhere in the world and things like dust hazard analysis. For U.S. Inc., um, and I'm going from memory here, we will include a link to the Chemical Safety Board report and um, the other things we mentioned in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 34. Just so the, the listeners are 
have some information. This is again from memory, so it may not be perfect, but they had tanks where they were um, distilling out the ink and the whole ducting system wasn't really designed that well. Ink dust settled out throughout the whole ducting system all the way up to the dust collector. So that was one difficulty. The, the dust was all accumulated. Um, it turned into this sort of sludgy mixture, if you look at the pictures, uh, because in addition to dust, vapors from the top, from the headspace of these tanks were also going through the ductwork. So now you had a hybrid mixture, sludgy kind of dust stuck in there that can't really move that well. Explosion happened in the dust collector outside on the roof, which is a good thing. It's good the dust collector's on the roof. It was suppressed, we'll say almost correctly. <laughs> so it was suppressed, the explosion in the dust collector, but it wasn't designed, the, the, the parameters for the suppression weren't designed for that KST. And the KST was enhanced because of things like having hybrid mixture and, and some of these other things that weren't really thought of in the design process. So they tested the dust, the raw dust, and, and came up with a, a suppression process. So they did quench the explosion in the dust collector, but the flame and the fire started traveling back through the dust collector, the venting, the ductwork, through all the sludge that had built up. And by this point, workers had accumulated. So in episode 30 of the podcast, I talked about challenges to responding to dust fires. So workers had accumulated. They, they noticed now that the, the ducting is all melting, all the flexi hoses melting. And catching fire so they get fire extinguishers they're waiting in the hallway to go in and eventually an, an elbow blows off one of the tanks the dust gets dispersed with the hybrid mixture with the sludge and you have a giant flash fire fireball that that consume the workers so there's there's a bunch of points there right there's hybrid mixture there's testing the right thing for your design parameters there's um, not necessarily designing suppression system i want to say correctly but um, it's it's knowing to look for these other things and maybe Maybe we can learn from that and look for those in the future. There's responding to dust fires. Should employees be the ones with fire extinguishers going in there and trying to put this thing out? Flex hoses. Should we be using flex hoses that can melt in this sort of system? Hybrid mixers in the headspace. So there's all these different points. I, that's the reason I like this case study is any one of those really could be picked up further. Um, and I think that's what, what, uh, what Keith is saying as, as well. Is there's a lot of opportunity to improve the process. And any one of them may have stopped the... I think seven individuals from from suffering burns in that that uh, incident. That's right. I'm, that's that's my point. Is that I, I think the whole process could have been completely redesigned in such a way that you may not have had a dust collector at all, and and that's that's got that's got to be a, a a major improvement. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. So I want to bring the the toolkit and the systematic approach all the way around. So we talked about a couple of the steps. Not sure we got into all of them, but we can probably. Yeah, I think that. Sorry, Chris. The, the quick one that is worth just getting at is is the the point we said about dispersion mechanisms. Uh, is obviously important to understand that uh, as part of your your analysis before you then fairly quickly, uh, in in some respects, can move on to the other parts because they're fairly standard. The hazardous area, the classification, and maybe a review of the. Uh, the sources of, of ignition is the next step. Uh, before you really then look quite hard at the consequences and whether or not you've really done enough and whether or not your, your risk is still too, way too high to be acceptable. Because the So if you've got something that's got a reasonable chance of, of exploding and your consequences are enormous, uh, you, you really need to be looking at it in rather more detail. And, and considering what other protection methods you might need. 
there's a simple point that in many cases you simply can't eliminate all the sources of ignition, which then leads you on to other thoughts like, do you need something like nitrogen inertion? Should you have a uh, some kind of suppression system or whatever? Uh, and that's really to look very hard at that loop that you had at the end of the unwrapped pentagon. No, I like that a lot. So I'll summarize the whole process then. Um, there's really three big steps. Uh, the probability of, of having a dust cloud, probability of ignition, and the consequences. The kind of first step, first thing to do is, do we have a fuel? Is it a product or a byproduct? Um, can we eliminate it? Can we substitute it? And then moving from there, that's really giving your first you know, fodder for a dust explosion. Do you have a fuel and do you have an oxidizer? Dispersion mechanisms, I, I think this is probably a whole area of discussion, a whole area of even science research that's going on right now. Um, so that's kind of a big part of it. And then you really move into some of your more traditional things that we're talking about uh, quite a bit on this show. Hazard areas classification, ignition control, identify ignition sources, how do we remove those from the process? And in the case where, actually not even... Some people say in the case where you can't prevent an explosion, protect, but actually in all cases, if you have a, a risk to people, we may we should probably protect as well. If you have an aluminum dust collector and it's the size of a house, you know, we can prevent all we want, but one, I, I would start asking, can we can we substitute that for a couple smaller dust collectors that are, you know, the size of sheds or something? But um, that's another point, that's a different point. Um, but we we need to protect in case something and when it's not really a case of in case, it's when something does happen. So then we need to protect the the workers well should we eject the fireball towards the the working area or towards outside well probably let's do it outside um to the parking lot or you know to the to the area that's chained off and inhabited well okay maybe the area that's inhabited um so a lot of those concepts kind of come up time and time again when it, and the last thing i want to kind of finish off on in this episode was really and i don't know if this will be differences between uk and europe and around the world but what are some similarities between this type of framework approach and what we've heard a lot on the show, which are which is the the dust hazard analysis, the DHA process that we're doing a lot in North America today. Well, I think that the the point about the European approach is is that this is very much wrapped into the regulation. It's it's interpreted slightly differently within the different countries, uh, but. The whole point is, is that that point that I started off with a little got a bit back when we're looking at the fuel, the way that the the European regulation says is that the first thing you've got to try and do is to eliminate the fuel, and then you go through well maybe you could substitute it for something else or you could get the inventory down. Before you do anything else, it's really focusing on can you get rid of the hazard completely in the first place and it isn't kind of immediately telling you you've then got to think about what hazards you've actually got and I, I i i feel though i'm not sure then i certainly need to spend a bit more time looking at, at north american practice but the general from what i've seen certainly from chemical safety board reports that that hasn't been quite so much it's been more analyzed what hazards you've got with your dust and design your plant to suit that hazard rather than, well, can you get rid of the problem in the first place? Yeah, that's a good, I think that's a good difference to highlight and, and lead off on. I would, 
I would agree. That question is not being asked enough. And it seems like it's baked right into the European process. Um, can we just eliminate the hazard? Because if you don't have the dust, <laughs> you don't need explosion venting. Or if you don't have an explosible dust, you don't need explosion venting necessarily. You don't need explosion prevention. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's probably a lot cheaper if you could, if you can actually, you know, it's harder when it's a product. Well, it's not impossible. You may be able to move to a larger particle size. You may be able to um, have a different mix. I mean, there's, then the safety aspect needs to be tied in with the whole production and design process and weighed accordingly. And in the same sort of cost benefit analysis that's done to decide what particle size should be for the, the, um, if it's absorption in the pharmaceutical process or whatever process it is, it needs just to be, to be brought up sooner in the design phase. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons why I, I, I call myself a, a process comma safety and equipment engineer is because I start off with the process. Uh, the comma is there because I, I start off thinking about the process. Uh, by making uh, and seeking to make the process inherently safer before I end, then get around to saying, okay, well, there is some stuff I can't get rid of. I'll have to have the bolt on pieces. That, that is the next piece, which is the safety piece. And I think it's much more important to think about inherently safe processes than it is to, 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 to end up with, say, explosion relief. Because as you rightly said, when you get to explosion relief, then you find yourself is well. Where does it relate to? I mean, does it does it point into the production area and it's a, and a risk to the, the 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 workers? Does it it point outside and it might actually be a risk to the general public, or or you point it upwards and it and it, it might be a risk to the seagulls? You know, it's 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 quite it's quite a problem. And and actually, might the best answer to the lot is well, don't have it. You know, the, the really good answer to, to dust explosion relief is design a process that doesn't need it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great place to lead off, leave off. And I would be remiss if I didn't um, bring up another, you know, giant that we're all standing on, which is Dr. Trevor Kletz. Um, and I think to close off, one of, one of his big quotes was, what you don't have can't explode. <laughs> so that's the elimination in a, in a nutshell. And I think that's a good place to to lead off. It is. That's an excellent place to lead off. And I would completely agree with you that uh, he was definitely one of the giants. Excellent. Well, I appreciate taking time of your day to come on and discuss this topic with the, the podcast. I, I know I learned a ton and I'm pretty sure the audience is going to get a lot out of this discussion as well. So thank you, Keith. No problem. Only pleased to help. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Keith Plum, uh, Director and Owner at Integral Pharma Services. We've been talking about the Dust Explosion Risk Reduction Toolkit, uh, which I mentioned early on about a paper that I wrote in 2013, which was this unwrapping of the Dust Explosion Pentagon. We'll include links to that paper. It will probably be behind a paywall, but you'll be able to see that there. I'll um, include links to videos with the Risk Reduction Toolkit as, as uh, Keith and his team developed. Um, I think I have a link to a poster as well that they've used. So we'll put all those in the show notes. Uh, as well as the case study we mentioned, US Inc. at dustsafetyscience.com slash 34. This has been a really great discussion, a lot of great points. Um, a lot of successes that we're seeing in other parts of the world that we, we can maybe apply in different regions. And we even mentioned some of the challenges as well. So it was great to get that whole versatile view of it. 
Uh, if you have any questions or any topics you'd like to see cover in the podcast in the future, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash ask, A-S-K, and we'll bring a subject matter expert on to discuss those. If you want to connect with Keith and um, learn more about his work, and he's based out of Cheshire, United Kingdom. I'm sure he travels um, all around Europe and, and anywhere close to the UK and even into North America. And uh, if you want to talk with him more, we'll have his contact information at the show notes as well. So as always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a great and productive and safe week ahead. And I appreciate the work that each of you are doing in industries handling combustible dust every day. 